morning, everybody. Um, our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pots that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, was, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Trish. Let's go now to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. On this Father's Day, Lord, we thank you that you are our true Father, Lord. And we thank you that as this passage shows us that you love your children and love us well. Father, I just ask that you would speak through me by your spirit. Pray that you would be glorified and magnified by our worship. And that you would use this time to bring each and every one of us closer to you. Whether we are far off or even already in the same house, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm thankful um, to be counted among you. And I figured, what better way to celebrate Father's Day than with this parable? We've got a man with two sons, but instead of breakfast in bed or the promise of going out to eat or pizza or grilling later, we've got a young son who comes to his father and wishes him dead and says, hey, dad, 
give me my share of the inheritance now. And we have the older son who, while he is kind of neutral through the beginning of this, we find out later harbors bitter and deep resentment towards his father. So happy Father's Day indeed. Now I know not all of us in here are fathers, and I know that there's probably many of us who do not have good relationships with our earthly fathers. We may even have bad relationships or bad experiences with them. And we bring that baggage here to this passage to Father's Day this morning. But the hope that we have in this passage is that whatever baggage we have, whatever our relationship even with our earthly fathers, Jesus shows us the true love of God, the love of our true Father. Jesus' audience, of course, for this parable that was listening to him give it, had baggage too. We don't know what their relationships were like with their fathers, but we are just like them. There were the sinners and tax collectors, the people who are seeking the good life now, taking what they wanted, when they wanted, all in the name of self-fulfillment and happiness and self-discovery, or those like the Pharisees and religious leaders who are morally upright, even uptight people, policing themselves and others officiously and ruthlessly. The truth is, and Jesus shows us through this parable, that we are just like his original audience, and even probably more than we would like to admit. Or we might be somewhere between those two extremes. And this might be discouraging to us. But this parable again shows us that God the Father's love for us, for his lost children, is what saves, changes, and restores us. This parable shows us that God loves us not because of or in spite of our actions, but God loves us because of the relationship. He loves us because he is our Father and we are his children. But before we get to that hope, before we get to that good news, we have to understand our problem before we can even approach or understand what a meaningful solution would look like. For example, in January 2018, almost a year and a half ago, I started having this really intense, really terrible back pain. And I'm six foot seven, I'm skinny, just kind of comes with the territory, um, happens frequently. Um, but usually I would just kind of wait, you know, a couple weeks, take it easy, see if the back pain would subside and go away. Um, but this particular time, a year and a half ago, it never went away, and it seemed a lot worse than it had ever been before. So I tried going to a chiropractor. That might have made things worse, but I didn't really know, like, what the problem was. I was just thinking, well, I'm tall, my back's going to hurt. That's just kind of life. And it wasn't really until it got so bad for me, for my back, um, until it was like a 9 or a 10 out of 10 pain-wise, and this was probably nine months later that I finally called um, at my doctor and requested an MRI and um, whatever treatment just to find out, hey, what exactly is the problem here? You know, I've tried guessing, I've tried assuming, I've tried just kind of wishful thinking and hoping that things are going to get better, but they're not. And so once I got that MRI, I found out I have a herniated disc. But then I was able to get steroid injections and when it was able to do physical therapy. And thankfully, from all those things, my back has been a lot better um, the last few months, which I'm really thankful for. Um, but I say all that to say that 
it's only when we actually understand the problem that we can approach any kind of meaningful solution. And in this parable, Jesus tells us and shows us that the problem with us, as is often the case in Scripture, is that we are sinful. We are lost in our sin. Of course, our sin is not isolated within us. It's not just kind of like an individual deal. Like, yes, it affects us, but as it does with the sun, it drives us to destroy and hurt others. Look again at verse 12. He goes to his father and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. To this son, the father is only good for his stuff. And of course, he's not just asking for an allowance increase. He's not just asking for help with a down payment on a sweet house in a good neighborhood. This son, in asking for his inheritance because he is the younger of two sons, is asking for a third of all that his father has. That means money, property, livestock, everything. For the father to meet this request, he'd have to liquidate one-third of his land, one-third of his livestock. And this, of course, would lessen his worth, would lessen his property, but also would lessen drastically his community standing in addition to the shame that meeting such a request would bring. Of course, the son didn't actually kill him, but in making this request and his father meeting it, he comes pretty close. He socially murders him. And it's interesting to look at even the Greek. You know, we all know what biology is. It's the study of life and science. The Greek word bios is what is there in the text and what Jesus said in the original text that for us is translated property. It says in the Greek, the father divided his life or his bios between his sons. So he is killing his father here. And his father is giving of his life to his sons, despite the disrespect, the shame of such a request. But before we just kind of pile on this younger, rebellious brother, we see in this parable that there's no objection from the older brother as the father is dividing his life between them. Now, it's a parable, not a true story, but the older brother is very much a part of the story, and we're going to get to him eventually. Jesus, of course, begins the parable saying, a man had two sons, even though our Bibles, we might think of this parable, our Bibles, most of them probably title this the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus says this was a man who had two sons, and both sons are very much part of the story. As we think about how our sin affects us, how it affects others, how we, like the younger son, are sinful, we see that his sin, his selfishness, leads him to effectively kill his father. Again, he's only interested in his dad's stuff. This causes him to leave home for a faraway land to get, you know, the grass is greener on the other side, to get as far away from home and familiarity as he can. And it causes him to consume everything around him. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And this might sound appealing to some of us or to all of us. Hey, no authority, we get to go to a new place, and there's no limits on what we can do or what we can have. That sounds awesome. And it might sound good, it might sound awesome to us, because our sin is no different from that of the younger son. 
This parable tells us that we are sinful. And whether our sins are public or private, our sin also causes us to harm others. It is harmful to others. It's damaging to the relationships that we have. It isolates us from community, as it did with the younger son. And it consumes us along with everything and everyone around us. Of course, it took Jesus two sentences to kind of set the scene here. But it only took one in verse 13 for him to say, And the son took all he had and squandered it in reckless living. This made me think of how James, in the book of James, chapter 1, describes the progression of sin in verses 14 and 15. He says, but each person, when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And like the prodigal son, we are dead because our sin is fully grown, even if we don't think so. This progression of sin is not a slow burn. In short order, the prodigal has disgraced, humiliated, offended, sinned against, and effectively killed his father, only to bring himself to the brink of death by his reckless living. So in order to survive, he must hire himself out to a Gentile, to a foreigner, and feed pigs, these unclean animals, these animals that were detestable to the Jews. That's the only way that he can make a living because his stuff is gone, his friends are gone, he has nothing. And it's only then that he comes to himself, as it says in verse 17, that he remembers his father and resolves to earn a better survival and better life for himself. Now, we might think, great, he's changed, he's enlightened, he's, he's kind of figured it out, but he's still only thinking of his father's stuff. He remembers Oh, hey, my father's servants have so much bread that surely I can just hire myself out to him so I can eat and not have to eat this trash that these pigs are eating. And it should make us think, how often do we do the same thing with God? How often do we think of God like the son thinks of his father? How often do we think of God for the benefits that we hope he would give us or that we expect him to give us? And when we sin against them, how often do we prepare our speech? Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I feel like I always recommend it when I preach. It's one of my favorite uh, sermon preparation resources. Even if you're not a parent or even if you don't have small kids, like, it's really excellent. <clears throat> it talks about the son preparing his I'm sorry speech. And, you know, how often do we do that with God? Like, all right, I'm going to prepare my speech I'm going to use a lot of big words. I'm going to make it sound really good. And I'm going to show him I'm really sorry this time. I'll even work as a servant to show him how sorry I am and to make myself right with him. And to show him, hey, Dad, I really mean it this time. Like, I'm really not going to mess up again. We imagine God as the disappointed, ashamed father who knew we'd screw up, who's now ready to rub our noses in it. The Jesus Storybook Bible in this story, you know, the son is thinking, dad won't love me, he won't want me to be his son anymore. And when I do come to him, when I do give him the speech and say, hey, dad, I'll work for you, I'll be one of your servants, he'll just say, look, that'll teach you. I could have seen this coming a mile away. We might think God is like this, and we might be ashamed to even come to him. 
we might not go to him because of the shame that we bring, because of the wall that our sins build between us and others and between us and our Heavenly Father. But instead, in this parable, instead of those visions of a disappointed, shaming, um, bitter father, Jesus shows us that God runs to his children as soon as he can see them, as soon as he can see them way out in the distance. He runs to him as the father does in this parable. Look again at verse 20. He says, but while the son was still a long way off, not he hadn't gotten to the porch yet, but the dad is there waiting. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the same father that this son wished dead very clearly. The same father that he humiliated and disgraced. This is the same father whose house he fled once he got what he really cared about, which was the stuff and the money and all that. This is the father that runs to meet his son as soon as he can see him. And friends, our father, God, is ready to do the same for us. No matter what we've done, no matter how disgracefully we've lived, and no matter how much we have squandered the gifts that he has given us. Despite the son's best efforts to destroy his father and even destroy himself, their identities are unchanged. The father still loves his son because of who he is, because he's his son. Of course, the son's actions warranted disapproval, warranted exile. Preparing his apology, he knows that his father might not take him back. His father would be right not to take him back because of the barrier that his sins have raised. He might not even take him back as a servant. Tim Keller, who wrote a book several years ago, um, it's really great, it's really short, recommend you read it um, at some point, but wrote a book called The Prodigal God in which he looks at this parable. And he says, you know, the son, this son knows that his father had bread to spare in his house, but he's surprised to find that there was grace to spare when he returns. And friends, God, our Father, has grace to spare for us, too. And that brings us to the good news of this passage, that while we, too, like the younger son, while we are sinful, while we are even dead in our sins, as Scripture tells us, we, like both of the sons in this parable, are children. Scripture tells us in Genesis 1 that we are made in God's image. But because of sin, Ephesians 2, says that we have become children of wrath, that we are children of the devil. But we are in Christ, as 1 John 3 and Romans 8 tell us, if we are in Christ, we have become children of God. We have been adopted into God's family. And if that is the case for us, we have been given a new identity our identity is no longer our sin, but our identity is as children of God. Some families here have adopted. It's, it's really awesome, really powerful, and just really amazing to think that God has adopted us. He's adopted us who were born children of wrath, born children of sin, into his family. And he's given us a new name and a new identity. And like with our children... Other things we do, good or bad, are going to change that. It's who we are. A couple months ago, um, the NBA finals just ended. This isn't 
totally a sports analogy, so don't tune out if you're like, oh, sports, here we go. <clears throat> but a couple months ago, there was a, an article on ESPN about the San Antonio Spurs coach, Greg Popovich, and it was about kind of the, the team building, um, the way kind of he's built this respected and successful team culture through team dinners at some of the best restaurants in NBA cities across the country. It even talks about some of the players who are like, what, like, we just lost a game, why are we going to dinner and like drinking wine and like doing all this stuff? <clears throat> but then they kind of come around and see like, man, this is just great to like put our phones away, talk to each other, like actually know each other, know about our families, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I forget who wrote it, but this article talks about um, kind of how that culture, that hospitality, that fellowship together has kind of built what has also been a successful and championship level basketball team. Uh, if you want a link to that article, I'm including it in the email update that's going out this week. So another plug to come talk to me if you want to get on that list. But you can also find it um, if you just search Greg Popovich, Greg Popovich Spurs Dinners, whatever, on ESPN. I really like this article because it's a great picture of what with RUF International, we're trying to do as far as hospitality, meals together, that sort of thing. And I think a lot of ministries want to do this because it's a foretaste, it's a picture of the wedding feast that scripture points to when we will celebrate together with God and with Jesus. So anyway, in this article, you know, they're going to all these fancy restaurants. Greg Popovich, the coach, um, he has his own winery, but it begins with talking about how they'll go to these restaurants and he'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on wine for the dinner, but then he'll also bring like half of that just back to his wine cellar to enjoy uh, himself. So because of all that, he's able, they're able to get reservations in these places, even if it's tight. You know, the staff is always like, hey, let's make it work. Like, these guys are awesome. They're going to spend a ton of money. And the article talks about this guy named Gregory Popovich, who has kind of found out about this. And the coach of the Spurs, his name is Greg, G-R-E-G-G. Gregory Popovich is not the coach of the Spurs. But he's kind of found out that, hey, I can call these, like, really awesome restaurants in San Antonio and San Francisco and other places. So, like, hey, it's Gregory Popovich. Can I get a reservation? They're like, oh, of course, sure. Like, we're booked, but, like, we'll make it work. Whether that's ethical, whatever, I don't know. But <clears throat> I say all that to say, like, this guy, Gregory Popovich, because of his name, he's gotten access, he's gotten benefits because of his identity. And as we are made children of God by the blood of Jesus, we, too, are given benefits, access, and gifts beyond what we can imagine because we have been given a new name in Christ. We have been given his name. As sons, we have these benefits. And the same thing is true of the sons in this parable. Of course, we've spent a lot of time on the younger son though, so far. But what about the older brother? Again, Jesus begins saying a man had two sons. He hears all the celebration that's going on after the younger son comes back. He hears the dancing and he says, hey, what's all this about? He's told that his younger brother has come back. He's back in the family. He's returned, and we're celebrating. Isn't this good news? Now, the picture we see of the older brother is probably like, 
come on, really? Like, we're celebrating this? Like, this guy devoured our father's property. He's understandably angry, and he stays outside of the celebration. He gives a very public vote of no confidence in his father and in his actions, celebrating the return of this younger brother. But even for him, the father approaches him in love, as he does with the younger brother, and invites him to come into the celebration. This may not seem like a big deal, like kind of hanging out outside the party. I'm an introvert. I like to do that at parties. Kind of be like, I'm going to get some air. I'm going to like chill. <clears throat> but this, this is a bigger deal in this culture because the father, for him to come out, he's, he's the lord of the manor. He's hosting this celebration. So for him to have to kind of go out and be like, hey, son, like, come on, like, be cool. Would you come in here, please? Is massively disrespectful. And he further disrespects his father by saying, look. He doesn't even address him as father or as an elder, but he just says, look, all these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your commands. And you have never even given me a goat to celebrate. Look at all this stuff I've done for you. And you haven't done anything for me. And this, this is where this parable hits close to home for me because I, I'm an oldest child, but I am also the older brother. Like, my thinking like this is, is, is more like this than I wish it was and than I would like to admit. <clears throat> but this parable is for us too. It's not just for the younger lost brothers who are rebellious, who come to the brink of death and then come back. It's also for those of us who are at church every week, are doing the right things, and think that we're owed something, that we too are invited into the celebration feast. We too are counted as children and are invited to come back into the celebration and into the family. This parable shows us that the two sons are ultimately not so different. Of course, the younger brother his sin is more blatant, it's more obvious, potentially more offensive in just getting the stuff that he wants from his father. But the older brother in this parable is just trying to do that subversively. He's just trying to get his father to owe him one by never doing anything wrong, by sticking with the law, doing all the right things, according to him, never breaking the law. But it's clear that both of them are only concerned about the stuff they just say, hey, like, I just want my reward. I want it now, or I want you to owe it to me. And that's not love. You know, our relationship with our children, our relationship with each other should be love. It shouldn't be a contract. You know, we pay our cell phone bills or whatever we're paying to say, like, hey, I expect, like, this level of service. And if I don't get that, I'm not going to pay or I'm going to leave. But that's a contract. That is not relationship. That is certainly not love. But we're quick to think that way. We're quick to think that way because while the two sons are not so different from each other, we are not so different either. Every one of us could be kept out or willingly stay out of the feast for some of the same reasons as these sons. Whether it's fleeing the father's love and his gifts in search of our own meaning and fulfillment, or whether it's avoiding Jesus by avoiding sin, earning our way to heaven without any help from anybody. 
even God himself. With both sons, Jesus tells us the father loves them and relates to them, not because of what they do or what they don't do, but he loves them because of their relationship. He loves them because they are his children and he is their father. Both of them have done wrong. The youngest, of course, thought his sins built too great a wall between him and his father to even come back. But his father welcomes him back. He runs to him, and he celebrates him, and he gives him the gifts and signs of readmission into the family. The elder son, of course, is staying out by his own will and by his own righteousness. In Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood, she says of the character Hazel Motes, this is kind of similar to the older brother, but she says of Motes, there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And as an older brother myself, I, th- I think that all the time. And I think I'm probably not alone in that, but this parable is good news for us too because both of these children are children. And none of it matters to our father if we are his children. Jesus tells two other parables before this one in Luke 15. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, and he tells the parable of the lost coin. And in both of those parables, the shepherd who loses his sheep and the woman who loses one of her ten coins, they leave everything else that they have once they realize they've lost something to go find what was lost. But what about this one? Who goes searching for the lost son? And why would Jesus tell three consecutive parables that are about something getting lost, the person who lost it searching diligently for it and finding it and celebrating accordingly? Why would he break form? Why would, why would this parable be different? Tim Keller again in his book, The Prodigal God, he argues that Jesus did this because there's a missing character. We're missing the true older brother who would go and search for his younger brother. Of course, the one here, the younger brother, has already destroyed his inheritance. And Keller makes that argument because that third of the inheritance is gone. All that's left belongs to the older brother. For the younger brother to come back into the family, it would be at the cost of the older brother. Because whatever's left of that inheritance is going to be, a third of it is going to go to the younger son again, even though he already got his inheritance. If he's truly readmitted to the family, he is brought back in at the cost of the older brother. And this is what we see in verse 22. As the son is met by his father, in verse 22, the father says, bring quickly the best robe, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Again, these were not things that the son left in his closet for when he'd come visit or whatever. This was stuff that belonged to the father and belonged by right to the older son. And we might, like the older brother, we might be like, yeah, I get, I get why he was mad. Like, he got his chance. He squandered it. He was very rude about it. But thank God that, that God himself and that Jesus do not think like us. They seek and search for the lost children, even when it is costly. And we, too, are lost, whether we're blazing a trail 
to destruction or are trying to get to heaven by our own accomplishments. Jesus, our true old brother, gave up his standing, his inheritance, and even his life that we might be co-heirs with him, that we might share in the inheritance that he had as God. He has everything. He had everything. He could have had it all to himself. But he came to find us who were lost, that he might bring us into the family. He might share all these things with us, that we too, like the younger son in this parable, might be clothed with the best robe of his righteousness. And the last thing we see briefly in this parable is that through Jesus, we are restored. We are made alive again. In a moment, we're coming to the communion table, which is the celebratory feast that was secured for us and which the feast in this parable points to, the celebration feast of a son who was dead but is alive, who was lost but is found. This supper, baptism, are the same as what the robe, the ring, and the shoes were for the younger son. They're signs of our admission into God's covenant family and the new identity that we receive from him at the cost of Jesus, our older brother's inheritance, at his great cost. The father says in verse 24 and in verse 32, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. And that's why he tells the older brother, it is fitting to celebrate. This is a big deal. It's not often that somebody is dead and then is alive again, is lost but is found. Another one more Greek nerd note for you guys. You know, even though he says it is fitting to celebrate, that word could even be more appropriately translated, it is necessary to celebrate. And it is necessary to celebrate. As we are restored, this parable is good news to us. It's good news because our sins are not our identity. Whether we are in blatant rebellion, you know, there might not be anybody here in blatant rebellion, or we might just be kind of turning back, you know, thinking up our I'm sorry speech. But God our Father does not identify us by our sinfulness. He doesn't identify us by our sin. He sees us as his son because we are clothed with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. That's true whether we are lost and far off, and that's true whether we are like the older brother under the same roof, or coming to church every week and doing the same things. God doesn't see us by our resumes, but he sees us by the blood and righteousness of his son, Jesus. He invites us to come into this family, and he gives it to us, though it's at great cost to him. He doesn't expect anything of us other than that we would come in and that we would accept it. And this frees us and drives us to love others the way that God loves us. Next week, we'll be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, so we'll see more of what it means to love our neighbors. But we see that here, too, that if the God of the universe knows us, relates to us, and sees us as his beloved children, despite the things that we do or don't do, what right do we, his creatures, who are fallible, who are limited, what right do we have to look at others and to identify and label them based on their actions, even when those actions have hurt us, even when those actions have hurt others, even when they are people or actions or things that we disagree with, whether it's 
political disagreements, ideological disagreements, even sexual orientation disagreements. What right do we have to see anybody differently than how God sees us, who he made in his image and who, by Jesus, he has made children? Jesus himself asks in Matthew 7, why are you obsessed with the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own? So as we come to communion in a moment, it is fitting, it is even necessary for us to celebrate this morning. We too, like the younger son, like both sons, were once dead, but we are now alive. We were lost, but are found, thanks to our true older brother, Jesus, who bore the cost to bring us back into his family. So let us pray and give thanks to God, our true father, as we come to the celebration feast. God in heaven, we just thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies to us and that you sent our true older brother to find us and to bring us back into the family at great cost to himself. Lord, as we go from here, we pray that you would help us to love each other, to love you as children of God, Lord, and help us to have your eyes to see others as clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and as of being made in your image. Lord, fill us with this good, undeserved love that you shower upon your children. And Lord, let it change us and make us more like our older brother Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.